This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Law School Show. In this episode, we will be talking about digital surveillance and algorithmic management. Especially in the world of work, this use of technology can lead to the most intrusive violations of human rights. Now, I won't spend too much time introducing this topic because we are delighted to be joined by Professor Valerio De Stefano at Osgoode Hall Law School to explore these topics with us. His experience is far too extensive for me to list here, but in addition to his prolific publications and teaching experience in universities across Europe and North America, Professor De Stefano has held positions in various international institutions, such as the International Labour Organization, or the ILO, the European Commission, and the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Most recently, Professor De Stefano has joined Osgoode Hall Law School in January of 2022 here in Canada, where he teaches and does research in the area of labor and employment law. Professor De Stefano, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Ali. Thank you for having me. Just um, a, a clarification in my extensive uh, experience, which is a very nice way to say that I am getting old. Uh, <laughs> I hold... I I held uh, a, a position properly at the International Labour Office for three years. Uh, I was an officer there. With the other institutions that you have mentioned, I had uh, just uh, some consultancy. So it was a, an external cooperation. It wasn't uh, an internal position. So I am old, but I am not that old that I was an officer in all of these uh, things on top of being an academic. Thank you. You're definitely humble as well. And um, yeah, I'm sure our listeners will keep that clarification in mind, uh, too. So before we actually get into the substantive discussions, um, uh, just as a starter, can you uh, tell our listeners what sparked your interest into labor and employment law and specifically this area uh, of digital surveillance and algorithmic management? Uh, okay, so I, I go back to my first statement that since I'm very old, uh, this is going to, to, to uh, I mean, uh, the, the moment in which I started working on labor and employment and the moment in which I started to more specifically looking at labor and technology, uh, I mean, there's a, a long period span in, in between. Uh, I have, um, so when I went to law school, um, I wanted to be a criminal lawyer. Then, for a series of reasons, uh, including I was involved in as, as a student representative in uh, again uh, having endless discussions with uh, the management, the administration of my uh, of my alma mater. Uh, one of the persons, uh, one of the professors that was in the administration at the point, and I, I had endless conversation with him to solve problems and issues. I mean, as normally student representatives do, uh, was a labor lawyer, is a labor lawyer. And at, at the end of the day, I, 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 I told him, you know, I mean, I, I, I come here and basically um, made your life more difficult for all these years. The only thing I can do to, to, to thank you is uh, to ask you if I can, uh, if, if you can be my, my TC supervisor. So there's a... 
the law schools um, in Italy and Europe in general, if you want to qualify to be admitted to the bar, are longer because there's no undergraduate before, so are longer than in North America. And so we write a sort of master thesis at the end of our ordinary uh, mm-hmm. curriculum. And so the master thesis, the, the thesis is a serious endeavor. It's not as big as a doctoral thesis, but it's considerably more extensive than one is a master thesis in uh, other parts of the world. So it was a big thing. And uh, and, and I, I did it only because I really liked this person. So I, I, I wasn't interested in labor per se, but I really liked this person and the way his approach to teaching and education, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so he gave me two books to read, um, and I was hooked. I mean, it was extremely interesting, the, the first things that I've read. And then basically from there, I started to, to, to work on labor. I've uh, done what you call your articling in labor and employment. At the same time, I was, that I was doing part-time, and then at the same time, I was a PhD student. And then a postdoctoral student uh, for some time until when I went to the to, to, to the ILO, and at the ILO, uh, the International Labour Office for our uh, audience is a, a United Nations agency that specialized on labour and employment issues. So it's basically an international organization whose headquarters is in Geneva. Of course, there are offices uh, everywhere in the world, but I was sitting in the headquarters in Geneva, and my um, my, my mandate there, my my tasks were writing uh, about non-standard forms of employment. So any form of employment that differs from the standard open-ended full-time employment relationship around which most labor employment legislation were built upon. Now, uh, so I was working on, I don't know, temporary agency work, uh, subcontracting, part-time work, casual work, um, this all these forms of non-standard employment. And at some point, one of uh, my supervisor uh, wrote in a report that we were co-authoring, basically, a line about crowd work, crowd employment. And I didn't know that what that was. Uh, I think we, we were talking around beginning of 2015 or the end of 2014. I didn't know what that was. And, I, and so I went and asked, uh, what, what are you talking about here? And she, um, her name is uh, Janine Berg, my, my, my former supervisor. Uh, she's an, a senior economist at the ILO. She uh, told me, no, I mean, you know, it's this form of work and is a, is a couple of things that you can read if you're interested in that. And so I started reading and I found out that uh, there was a world of legal issues that could be opened by examining the intersection of law and technologies, in particular, uh, when it comes to what we call platform work or the gig economy. Uh, so basically, this is how I got into the debate on labor and technology, which is much broader than that, of course, and, and it predates uh, the gig economy uh, for sure. But that's how I entered into that um, that topic. Wow, that's fascinating. And speaking of irregular work, I want to jump into the substantive questions. And for a starter, can you tell our listeners what algorithmic management is and how does it differ from traditional modes of workplace management? Yeah, so algorithmic management is um, 
if you want an umbrella term that includes any forms of uh, management practice that is powered by algorithms or uh, artificial intelligence, if you want. So it's basically a way of outsourcing managerial tasks to the machines. Uh, this can take the form of um, algorithms that direct you to your next task. So imagine uh, an Amazon warehouse uh, and uh, a worker that needs to collect uh, the items from the shelves, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There is no supervisor that tells them where they have to go and what items they have to collect. So it's all basically operated through an algorithm, a technology that uh, basically... Uh, involves normally the fact that these people also wear uh, some smart badge or some bracelet or whatever or any form of wearable device that uh, directs them to the next task. And if we stay with this example, these systems also, um, for instance, monitor how long somebody takes to complete a certain task. So basically you have to go uh, to the next shelf and complete the task of collecting the item and bringing them, bringing the item to uh, the packing station uh, in one minute or 45 seconds or whatever. So there is this monitoring aspect that can also be outsourced to, to technology. Uh, but monitoring through technology is much more uh, expansive than that. Uh, it can also uh, include the fact that um, office workers, for instance, can be monitored through technology by uh, with the, the help of software that tracks how long they sit at their computer and uh, when basically they are active or not uh, on their computer. I mean, if you are on Outlook, for instance, when uh, the badge is green, you are active. When the badge is yellow or red, uh, there's something that is happening that basically makes you not active. That is the most basic thing. But of course, there are much more uh, complicated ways of doing that, uh, including, for instance, tracking how many keystrokes you give to your keyboard in a certain moment of time, or taking random screenshots uh, of, of your screen to see whether you are working or, I don't know, watching the news or, or whatever, using the video cameras sometimes in a stealth way to, again, uh, monitor whether you are sitting at your computer or not. And all these then gets basically compiled in files that are sent to human managers sometimes, or also the, ma the machine can basically um, take the view that you are not working, that you are not productive enough, and they can suggest to your manager to discipline you or basically order them to discipline you. So in some cases, we have seen that uh, managers had no saying in um, basically determining the workers that had to be uh, fired because they were not considered productive enough by the algorithm. So these are more or less the idea of algorithm management. Then I'm sure we will discuss that uh, in the course of uh, our conversation. But the idea is you take a task that normally was executed by a human person, a, a human manager, and, and you outsource it to the machine. What are the differences from the, 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 the managerial activities in the past? Of course, managers have always directed work, monitored work, and supervised work. The difference here, 
I mean, among the many differences that maybe we will discuss again, but one of the biggest differences is that this allows for an invasive uh, management that surveils workers all the time throughout all basically the minutes in which they are engaged in work, which is something that uh, it's impossible to do if you have a human manager. I mean, you, a human manager cannot uh, basically watch you all the time unless you have a manager per uh, per worker, which is completely unviable, right? So um, there is a, a huge quality leap in the kind of invasiveness and uh, surveillance that is involved in algorithmic management, which makes it a little bit different from manager uh, managerial activities in the past. So I want to pick up on what you mentioned about algorithms replacing certain managerial functions, because what we often hear is that the advance of technology will lead to the replacement of human labor as they become more and more obsolete, whereas you argue that technology also leads to human labor being invisible. So in your new book, for instance, which is called Your Boss as an Algorithm, you and your co-author, Antonio Aloisi, invoke many thought-provoking sentences such as work at the service of technology and humans stealing the work of machines, which I thought to be very interesting because it's always framed the other way around. So. Can you please explain to our listeners how does technology conceal work in this whole process? Sure. So uh, in this book that I co-wrote with my uh, colleague Antonio Aloisi, um, Your Boss is an Algorithm, um, we lay out some examples of what you're saying. So basically, this mostly happens in uh, crowd work. So crowd work is a form of platform work in which you execute online tasks that, again, can be distributed online by customers from everywhere in the world to anywhere in the world that you are sitting, okay? Uh, what's the invisible part in that? Um, in many cases, we think that these activities are done by machines, okay? For instance, audio transcription, uh, tagging photos online, um, tagging articles, uh, I mean, and assigning keywords to articles or writing short uh, um, summaries of, of text. These are all things that machines are still unable to do in most of the cases and are provided online at a very cheap price because, again, there's a competition from everywhere in the world. So basically, you can sit in India and work for somebody in Canada. And of course, the amount of money that you receive make you competitive in India to workers in Canada because the cost of living is, is so different. So basically, the idea is you tend to make work invisible by convincing people that something is done by a machine. So this is why we call uh, this uh, artificial artificial intelligence, because basically it's a, um, it's a small screen. The technology conceal the workers. Now, this is perfectly exemplified by uh, the name of one of the most uh, famous crowdwork platforms, which is called the Amazon Mechanical Turk. So it's a project of Amazon. 
And basically, uh, it is called the mechanical tark because the mechanical tark um, was originally a device that was introduced in the um, in the court of Maria Theresa uh, of Austria in uh, in the late 18th century. And basically, this was a, a robot, an automaton that played chess. It played chess very well, which by the time for that time it was miraculous. I mean, people couldn't believe that an, a, a, a machine could play chess, and and so this was the wonder of the day. And then he came back in different courts uh, later, and I mean, he played with Napoleon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, what was the trick behind that? Yeah, the mechanical Turk. Uh, it was a trick because there was somebody hidden in the machine. So basically, it was a machine. It wasn't a machine at all. There was somebody concealed in the box that moved the the chess pieces around uh, the chessboard. Why Amazon called the Amazon Mechanical Turk the Amazon Mechanical Turk? Because it's exactly the same idea. You conceal human labor behind a tech facade. So basically, we are convinced that all of this work is made by machines while it's made by humans. Uh, what does this entail? Why do we care? Because, of course, if you conceal work, there is no way and no reason to protect it and to, to better the conditions of work. And I mean, the working conditions on these platforms can be particularly dire. I mentioned the fact that you uh, normally receive a very, very small payments for the task you complete, but also you have to work extensive hours if you want to get access to the best paid jobs in the platform. Customers have um, the possibility in many cases to reject the task, so basically to um, refuse paying you and at the same time retaining the job that you have done. So basically you lose the job, you, you lose the money and also your rating goes down because your work was rejected. So there are many uh, negative implications of concealing work behind technology. And uh, again, the uh, crowd work is just one of the instantiation of that. Uh, but again, uh, platform work and other forms of uh, tech intensive work, if you want, uh, are uh, exemplary of this. Wow. So evading regulation by hiding work seems to be the strategy that's at play. So I want to move on to the gig economy. You also mentioned uh, the um, Amazon Mechanical Turk, which provides a good sort of segue to this section. So can you please explain to our listeners the scale and trajectory of the gig economy? Of course, we know them mostly by delivery apps, but there are far more sectors that use digital intermediaries to arrange work. So my question is, how large of a portion of the economy will be dominated by platform work in the future? Now, that's a very interesting question. The point is, we don't have, in many cases, reliable data because the platforms don't share those data and people work for many platforms at a time. So it's not easy to understand realistically how many people are out there that work through platforms. What we know for sure is that these platforms have uh, increased in the, in the in recent years and now basically they are 
uh, everywhere uh, if you count uh, i don't know delivery food delivery but also uh, these online platforms of crowd work that we have talked about uh, but there are many other sectors uh, including for instance uh, i mean transportation services such as uber and lyft uh, that also form part of platform work and very importantly also domestic work so basically cleaning services household services that are increasingly ch channeled through platforms so we don't have reliable numbers uh, but we see that there is uh, a certain prevalence of this um, of, of these forms of work in um, initially in uh, if you want low wage sectors uh, but the point with platform work is that it has the attitude to expand. So many of the things that started with platform work, including this um, algorithmic management, the fact that basically the workers are dispatched by algorithms or monitored through, uh, again, uh, algorithms, are expanding beyond what we traditionally called the gig economy, to the rest of the labor market. And at the end of the day, it's also, and maybe we can discuss this later, but it's natural that this, that this is the case because uh, the platforms basically have managed to escape regulation for many years and to get around regulations by classifying people as independent contractors where when there is no real autonomy in the work that they do. And this, of course, comes with uh, reduced costs for employers. So, of course, any other employer is only incentivized to try and escape regulation through the use of technology of this tech smoke screen uh, beyond the traditional areas of, of gig work, uh, which is something that is particularly concerning, of course. Yeah. And yeah, you mentioned uh, the classification issue, which was actually my next question. You speak of the falsehood of placing the flexibility of working hours um, against the provision of basic minimum labor rights to uh, workers in the gig economy. Of course, aside from the fact that this flexibility is mostly superficial, given how um, algorithmic monitoring and management really controls the day-to-day -day activities of, of workers in the gig economy. Uh, but you also mentioned that even in the traditional work um, environment and framework, um, flexibility is not something that's incompatible uh, with what we have right now. So can you uh, explain that to our listeners and dismantle this myth that you either have flexibility or you have labor rights? Yeah, so basically, this is something that it's a it's a narrative that the platforms have been pushing extensively, and everywhere they have litigated cases in which uh, workers were initially classified as independent contractors, and after a certain point, they realized that they were managed and controlled in ways that were extremely similar to what employees are subject to without getting access to the rights that normally derive from being classified as an employee. So basically, you are an independent contractor and you uh, don't get any protection. And normally that's justified by the fact that you have autonomy in uh, managing your work and you don't need the protection because of this autonomy. But when you are a platform worker, you neither have the autonomy 
all the protection uh, in many cases. And this is not just platform work. There are many freelancers around our uh, economies that are misclassified as independent contractors and don't get any of the autonomy that comes with independent contractor status, but also they don't get any of the protection that should come with employee status. So platforms went around the world basically litigating the idea that since people were allowed to join, to go on and off the platform whenever they wanted, they were self-employed because an employee is only someone that works nine to five and has a fixed regular schedule. The trop, there are many tropes that need to be debunked uh, in this wall narrative. The first one is that uh, this flexibility uh, in many cases is notional and uh, we don't know even whether it's true. In the sense that it is true that nobody, you don't have a manager normally. In some cases, even platform workers have these kind of managers and still the platforms try to make the argument that people are flexible. But normally, there is no manager that tells you, you need to be here by that time. And if you don't show up, you need to justify it or you get penalized. Now, as I said, some platforms even have these kind of practices, but platforms such as Uber, for instance, don't have managers that tell drivers when they have to get uh, in the car and start driving around people. What is the issue? The first one is that until when we know how the algorithms work, we cannot take for granted that the algorithms doesn't factor how stable your work performance is and doesn't penalize you when you are trying to get a new task. So if somebody gets preference over you because they have a more stable workflow and you don't, there is no real flexibility because you are forced to work uh, as much as possible to get to the next uh, job. So the flexibility idea in many cases is notional. What we also say in the, in the book and in many other articles we've published in the past is that flexibility and flexible schedules are not the only criterion on the basis of which you have to assign labor rights, okay? Basic labor rights and protections. Uh, it may be one of the criteria that you consider, but certainly one doesn't need protection only because he has or not, they have or not uh, a regular fixed schedule or an unstable schedule. I mean, labor protection is not just attached. It's not only needed because you have a certain kind of schedule. So uh, we pose the question, does it make sense to tie all the labor protections to flexibility of schedules and in our opinion it probably doesn't now we have to say that in uh, in time many other courts around the world started to make the same consideration and even uh, courts that initially started from the assumption that if you had a, a certain flexible schedule you will not be protected by employment laws because you were self-employed they went to the idea instead of saying well even if you are free to come and go from the platform whenever you want. When you work, you are subject to so much management, direction, discipline from the platform that it doesn't make sense to consider you 
a self-employed person. You are an employee, even if you only work in certain discrete period of time. So uh, this trope, uh, this commonplace that you cannot uh, have flexibility and employment protection, it is truly a commonplace because especially now technology allows flexible schedules and at the same time control management and coordination that normally are associated with employment status. So there is no regulation that basically prevents employers to allow flexible schedules and still treat people as employees. We see that the courts have started to go more in depth in the analysis of the true relationship between platforms and workers and go around this idea that only people with regular schedules can be employees. That has never been the case in the past and it shouldn't be now. Yeah, no, absolutely agreed. And a more recent uh, aspect of this classification debate has also been the introducing of a third category of workers, which is specific to platform workers. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think the new Ontario Working for Workers Act, uh, the gig work provisions uh, do fall within that category. And I was wondering if you can explain the limitations of this approach and why are platform companies like Uber and Lyft lobbying for them so aggressively throughout the world? So the point is that platform workers lobby for their own categories rather than an intermediate category. Because in Canada, for instance, there are dependent contractors, which is an an intermediate category between employees and independent contractors, and they get some protection from the law, including the possibility of unionizing and getting access to the collective uh, labor uh, regulation system. But this is exactly what Uber and Lyft and other platforms don't want. So it is not that they, in general lobby for intermediate categories. They lobby for their own categories, even when you have an intermediate category. So they do that in the UK when there, where there is an intermediate status between employees and self-employed that is called the workers. And workers get some, not all, but some meaningful employment and protection, including the minimum wage, the ability to unionize, uh, non-discrimination at the workplace, and other important labor rights. And normally in countries where uh, there is no intermediate category like the United States, the argument of the platform is to say, well, uh, you know, uh, our work is different from the past and we, it cannot be uh, easily categorized in employment or self-employment. This is why we need an intermediate category between employment and self-employment and only give some protection, but not all the protection to these people. And crucially, this protection that they normally uh, advocate for are meaningless protection, no unionization, uh, some non-discrimination protection, very, very basic things. Um, In countries in which there is an intermediate category, and it's already established in the law or in case law, such as Canada or the United Kingdom, that doesn't fly with the platforms either because they don't want the kind of protection that these intermediate categories already afford. They want a specific category that is basically tailor-made to their own needs. 
this is not how labor market regulation works, because why we should do that for Uber and Lyft or whoever and not do that for the restaurant around the corner? If you start fragmenting labor market regulation for every business need, you don't have labor market regulation anymore. So, uh, again, I, I think one thing that I want to encourage our listeners to do is never to basically stop at the titles and the tropes that you hear when, when anyone discusses labor policy. Uh, you need to see the detail. Now, this uh, bill that you were mentioning uh, identifies certain rights that need to be afforded to, let's call them gig workers or platform workers. Crucially, no um, no labor rights are attached, no collective labor rights, the, the ability to get into a union, to, 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 to form, um, I mean, to, to enter in a collective negotiation, to ident- be identified as a bargaining unit with your colleagues, etc., etc., which is one of the most crucial forms of protection uh, in, in labor relations, is not provided under these bills. Uh, even though, even though, uh, for instance, the Ontario, the Ontario Labor Relations Board has identified some gig workers as dependent contractors. So you already have legislation that can help you. And in my opinion, many platform workers can be classified directly as employees without even bothering going into the dependent contractor thing. But even if we wanted to go there and to basically make this concession, this wouldn't be enough for the platforms, and this bill doesn't help in this sense. It basically adopts what the platform wants, give them basically anything they want without protecting workers with fundamental rights that should be accessible to everyone that works, including the right to form a union and bargain collectively. Mm-hmm. And in terms of looking beyond what the categories of the law are for providing basic labor rights, You argue in an article uh, from 2018, if I'm not mistaken, that a solution to the problems that we see in the gig economy is to have a very strong and robust union apparatus where workers can negotiate the way in which algorithmic management takes place in the specific uh, work dynamic that they're in. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read a quote uh, where you say, that claiming full employment status is an uncertain and hazardous route for workers who are thus trapped in these systems of domination with no realistic solution in the form of reclassification as employees. Yeah, so I need to uh, specify. I think this article is a bit more recent. It must be in around 2020. It's, it's like oh, master and service. I apologize. No, no problem. But uh, I think it's, uh, it's that article. Um, so... What I what I mean there is I completely agree with the fact that people that are employees, in fact, and are classified as self-employed, are misclassified as self-employed, should get reclassification as employees, okay? So in no way I'm saying we should not be concerned about this topic, and I have written extensively try and prove that in many cases, platform workers can be classified as employees. At the same time, at the same time, what I write in the article is that the kind of managerial control and discipline that 
platforms or in general employers exert through algorithmic system goes well beyond the realm of employment and is expanding extensively in what is classified as self-employment. Now, whether this self-employment is genuine or bogus, it is true that we are seeing an expansion of control in the realm of self-employment. Now, uh, maybe later we can discuss what can we do with this employment status. But what I argued in that article uh, mm-hmm. is based on the idea, and, and that is based on my experience at the ILO, of the International Labour Office, of identifying fundamental rights such as freedom of association and collective bargaining as universal rights, fundamental rights that belong to everyone that works. Okay, so if you look at the ILO conventions on freedom of association and collective bargaining, which, by the way, Canada has ratified and are uh, what the uh, ILO defines as fundamental conventions, so are those conventions that bind every member of the ILO, even if they haven't ratified the the, the relevant conventions, those conventions mm, are clearly clearly state that... uh, Everyone, every worker, without distinction whatsoever, has the right to engage in collective bargaining and has the right to join or form a trade union. So it is clear from those conventions that those rights belong to everyone who works. It's not just employees that have those rights. So I say uh, we can discuss whether platform workers are classified correctly are self-employed or employees. In some cases, they are. In some cases, instead, they are misclassified. But anyway, even if the classification as self-employed persons were correct, still these people have a fundamental human right granted by international sources which that have been ratified by Canada, if we are talking about the Canadian landscape, to unionize and engage in collective bargaining. So we don't need to give them permission, okay? We don't need to graciously grant them permission to unionize and bargain collectively. They have that right. They have those rights. And if you look at the Canadian Supreme Court application of uh, the, the, the rights to freedom of association and collective bargaining that is rooted in the charter, there's very good arguments to say that those rights in the Canadian landscape belong to everyone who works. And if you want to restrict the right to freedom association and bargain collectively, you need to have compelling reasons. So you should not start from the idea that only employees can unionize and bargain collectively. The self-employed also can and should be allowed to do so without interference. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that you mentioned charter litigation and more generally implementing these international standards at the national level. But my question is really uh, how, uh, because I know that international law, even though it's theoretically binding on the countries that decide to ratify certain conventions or treaties, um, it's very hard to enforce on the ground. Uh, In fact, you mentioned that uh, Canada has ratified an ILO convention that deals with Uh, labor rights uh, for all independent of uh, classification, but 
on the ground, uh, we don't really see that at the national level. So how do we go about in really actualizing these progressive um, standards at the international level? So in my idea, well, this is a very complicated question. And I mean, in Canada, it is also further complicated by the federal nature of the system. So you have some provincial competencies, some uh, federal competencies, and it's not easy to basically uh, put all the layers uh, in order. Uh, in my opinion, the Supreme Court of Canada has been receptive recently uh, of the, if you want, the obligations that stem from international uh, treaties and conventions, including the uh, fundamental conventions of the ILO and other sources. Uh, it's not an easy task. They, the conventions of the ILO are written to be theoretically ratified and applied by more than 180 states, basically almost all the states in the world. For these reasons, they tend to be very generic and uh, every national domestic application needs to take also into account, again, the domestic reality. There are certain fundamental elements of those freedoms of right and, and rights and in some cases, uh, for instance, if you talk about the ILO, there are certain bodies that help identifying these essential elements, uh, even though their, uh, let's call it inappropriately, case law is not immediately binding, but they're certainly authoritative sources. The Canadian Supreme Court is, in my opinion, doing a good job in looking uh, the sources and trying to understand how to basically implement those principles in the Canadian reality, of course, is a case-by-case approach and is extremely complicated to do so. So at some point we may even see, I'm not sure how, how, how likely that is, some legislative responses to all of this, I'm not sure how um, desirable that is because uh, it may be that the, the people that implement those sources in, in domestic legislation may basically uh, not do such a great job. Certainly, the courts are more receptive, especially more receptive than in the past. It's also very difficult to coordinate, uh, I mean, the different uh, systems of protection and the common law and uh, the labor relation model and system, etc., etc. So it's a long process, but it's a process that is advanced in the making. Mm -hmm. And this takes us to the topic of the appropriate legislative response to the intrusions of algorithmic management, and I wanted to get your thoughts on what kind of legislation would you like to see? What is the most ideal and comprehensive for you, uh, given that we don't necessarily have to confine ourselves to labor and employment law? There is, of course, general human rights law or privacy-specific legislation, such as the European General Data Protection Regulation. So can you uh, give our listeners an overview of which kind of legislation uh, takes pr priority, if any legislation takes priority at all? Well, I mean, um, again, uh, it's a very complex um, issue. Uh, in my opinion, it is urgent to detach 
the protection of fundamental and human rights from employment status. And to say without doubt that everyone has access to human rights protection at the workplace, regardless of whether they are employees or self-employed. It might be that in some system that is already the case, but it's certainly, if you want, embryonical and not so much, even if it's in the books, is not applied in practice as it should. Uh, the same goes for privacy protection. Again, it's, it's another human right. The GDPR that you mentioned, the, the European General Data Protection Regulation, doesn't distinguish between employees and the self-employed. It speaks about data, data subject, even though there are some complications when you go in the workplace and you want to apply some of these principles uh, extensively and not just to, um, to employees. Uh, when it comes to freedom of association and collective bargaining, again, it's not just the self-employed. There are many other workers, if I'm, including, if I'm not wrong, uh, domestic workers and other people that are excluded from access to collective bargaining um, without particular reason. And I mean, again, if we look at the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court and how they interpreted the constitutional rights to collective bargaining and freedom association, we see that there is a sensibility to that discourse. Uh, but I, I think we are still, I mean, we are still far from an ideal um, system in which every person that works has those fundamental rights protected and guaranteed as they should. Uh, then, so again, the, the basic answer is everyone for me, everyone, regardless of whether they are employees or self-employed, should have access to fundamental labor rights. Now, if we are talking about more detailed labor rights, again, we can have a conversation and also we have to make sure that the rights that we, that the legislation reserves only to employees, and I, I to be honest, I have written in the past that I'm not so sure that this distinction between employment and self-employment uh, um, still maintains all the sense that he had in the past, in the current situation. But if we want to reserve some rights only to employees, we should make sure that no one is mis misclassified as a self misclassified as a self-employed person if they are employees. So. Uh, for instance, the European Union has now uh, the Commission of the European Union, so the government, let's call it like that, one of the parts of the government of the very complex uh, institutional framework of the EU, the Commission has proposed a directive on platform work. And one of the things that this directive will do is to include a presumption of employment of platform workers if certain criteria are present. So basically, if you are a mm -hmm. platform worker and your relationship has certain features, then you can go to court and it's the other party that has to prove that you are not an employee and you are a, a genuine self-employed person. Uh, the proposal is there. Uh, it has many shortcomings and the European Parliament is trying to fix some of these shortcomings. We'll see how in... Uh, these negotiations, where, where we will land, uh, the, the proposal per se, I mean, it's a good initiative. I mean, it's good that the, the commission has taken the initiative, but the devil is in the details. And 
for the moment the actual wording of the proposal uh, mm-hmm. is still far from giving meaningful protection to people. Yeah, and I want to return to the Canadian framework, or rather the Ontario framework, specifically the Working for Workers Act. Now, we spoke about the classification provisions over there, but there are also some privacy provisions, such as the right to be informed if you are being surveilled at the workplace, but nothing more to my understanding. And I wanted to see what your thoughts are on that legislation in general, and how would you evaluate its privacy provisions? Well, the point is, information is all good. I mean, if you want to increase transparency, it's always a very good thing to do, but it's far from being sufficient. Uh, First of all, if you only inform me as an individual worker, I barely know how to switch on my laptop. So even if I get information that there is certain forms of surveillance in place, I don't have any saying and I don't have the ability to understand what's going on. And so it's, yes, I get some transparency. Mm -hmm. I am informed that you are monitoring me, but I don't know anything about it. So, yeah, I mean, it's a very basic level of of protection, if you want. I have advocated in the past for involving the social partners or the unions uh, in and, and labor inspectorates for the matters in the management of algorithmic systems at the workplace. Uh, Before introducing an an algorithmic management system, you need to discuss with someone because many of these systems are flawed. Many of these systems don't make sense at all. They don't increase productivity. They uh, increase the risk of uh, discrimination. And uh, you should get uh, a much proper protection from these systems rather than just being informed that they are there. Um, just this information is not particularly useful for your, for, for individual workers. So in my opinion, there should be collective rights of information and negotiation of what goes on in the system. We should not even take, it to account, take for granted that the system should be allowed just because they are possible. I mean, some of these systems are extremely invasive. They aim to read your facial expressions through your te- to, to your camera to see whether you're paying attention or not to your, I don't know, to your spreadsheet or uh, whether you are uh, lying during an interview. Uh, in many cases, these are also completely unreliable systems because no serious neuroscientist can vouch for the reliability of, uh, of these systems. Uh, we know uh, for a fact that these systems, as I said, uh, in many cases are tailored over a young, white, male person. And everyone that is not included in, in that uh, group of people uh, risks having um, the systems reading what they're doing or, what, uh, or who they are in a completely uh, biased way. And again, many of these systems are extremely invasive of privacy and in many cases completely useless for productivity. So we should not take for granted that anything that you can do should be allowed. And uh, we need to have a much broader public conversation on this. And this is also one of the purposes of the book. Uh, in At the workplace, in my opinion, the better way of dealing with this is to involve the labor unions where they're present or labor inspectorates when 
it's impossible to reach uh, out with uh, with unions. Uh, one thing that is essential to understand is that in many cases, employers that employ these systems don't have any idea of what these systems do and are because they don't have the technical capability of understanding the system. So basically imagine it's just like giving a weapon, a very powerful weapon in the hands of somebody that doesn't know how to hold a weapon in their hands. The risk that somebody gets hurt is huge. Uh, and therefore it's not just a matter of advocating uh, rights for the sake of advocating rights. It's to defend society from systems that can be extremely helpful. Now we are approaching the end of this episode and I want to thank you very much for your time. And as a final question, I was wondering if you have any advice for law students and lawyers who are very much interested in this area of the law and want to gain some experience, whether that's practical or theoretical in research. Well, there there's not a single answer to that. My suggestion is always uh, to start reading. Uh, there is already... Mm -hmm. um, significant literature on algorithm management of the workplace um, that has burgeoned in the last uh, couple of years. So first of all, reading to make yourself an idea of what is at stake, and then uh, talking with workers, talk, talking with labor unions, talking with employers to understand how widespread are these systems in practice and how they operate. And these people in most cases, know that these systems are there and see that they are problematic. And as lawyers, uh, your duty, uh, whoever you talk with, is to try and come up with solutions to the problems that they represent to you. So uh, to do that, to come up with solutions, and then only afterward, imagine to litigate, imagine advocacy, but you really know, need to know what's there, what's out there. And the best thing to do is to do that is, of course, to read and basically uh, know the literature, but also speaking with the actual people that implement or are subject to these systems. Absolutely. That's uh, great advice. And with that, I would like to thank you again uh, for coming on to this show for this very insightful conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here. Next time on The Law School Show.